Short Rounds. Hey, y'all, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and I hope I'm not wearing you guys out with another subsequent Friday bonus short round. Much like the one I did last week, this short round is a companion piece, a supplement to my series on the Imjin War, the gigantic samurai invasions of Korea from 1592 to 1598. In my short round last week, I discussed the Japanese samurai army and how it worked from the ground up. And this week, I'm looking at the other side, the military of Ming China, and to a lesser extent, its little brother, Chosun Korea. As we all know, I like to pack my series with bits of detail or flavor I didn't get to include in the broader narrative. Like, like last week. Imagine if I stopped the entire narrative of the Imjin War to go on a 30-minute rant about samurai armor. So I take these, let's call them narrative tumors, snip them out, and remold them into easily digestible short rounds. I think it makes much more sense this way. So today's short round will discuss the Chinese military in the 1500s, the 16th century. What it was, why it existed the way it did, how it was led, how it fought, what weapons it used, and its strengths and weaknesses. I'm super interested in Chinese military history. I'm interested in everything. Because it's so little known in the West. All sorts of unknown soldiers in Chinese history. Then we'll get there. I plan to do more on China in the future. I will be discussing the Korean military today as well, not as much, because A, Korea's armed forces mostly reflected the Chinese in their makeup and philosophy, and B, I think the first two episodes of the Imjin War gave us most of what we need to know on the topic of the Korean military. But I'll still include the Koreans where they're relevant. So let's meet the dragon and his protege, big brother and little brother, the militaries of Ming China and Chosun Korea. As always, not just history, but military history, always some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources for the whole series are on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want to fact check me, feel free to do so. Also, don't forget the maps. I have maps on there as well in case any of these borders get fuzzy to you. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are all on my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. China is big. In the 1500s, Ming China had a population of around 180 million, easily the largest country on earth. Whenever China has had its crap together throughout history, it inevitably dominates East Asia. And China is also old. It has a history as a unified empire stretching back to ancient Egypt. But there have been different versions of China. Ancient, classical, medieval, modern, all that. Like China Mark I, China Mark II. And Ming China, the Ming Dynasty of China, was mm, China Mark 14, about. I think that's right. It was the East Asian superpower throughout the 1400s and 1500s, the time when the world was moving from medieval to modern, and it had a military worthy of a superpower. So to explain the Chinese army, I'm going to compare it a little bit to Hideyoshi's samurai army, which we're familiar with from the series and from last week to draw out that contrast between these two armed forces. Let's do this in a quick list, because the internet loves lists, right? The five big things you need to know about the Ming Chinese army. Number one, the Chinese army was different from Hideyoshi's samurai army in one key area. It was a centrally controlled and organized state army. 
Hideyoshi's army was organized in a medieval style. It was made up of dozens of smaller armies, all trained and equipped by local warlords. But the Chinese army was a professional standing army serving the empire. And for the 1500s, it was surprisingly modern. The Ming army had a rank structure, a supply system, training manuals, inspectors, standards, regulations, tables of organization. And Hideyoshi's army had none of this, none of this higher up organization. Ming officers were required to pass examinations, Ming soldiers went through training schools, and there was even published doctrine. Again, none of this stuff in Hideyoshi's samurai army. Now, implementation was another question. All these things, these standards and regulations were present in theory, but how much they were actually followed is another question entirely. Didn't always work as intended. But China just functioned much more like a modern state than Japan did on just a fundamental level. It had a strong central government and a large educated bureaucracy. Which leads me to thing you need to know about the Chinese army number two. China's unique level of civilian interference in the army. From their earliest days, Chinese governments relied on an educated elite, an official scholar class educated in accordance with the ideas of Confucius. These Confucian scholar officials were hired using a difficult imperial examination system, like SATs on steroids. And compared to Hideyoshi's Japan, where political and military authority were always combined in the same person, the Chinese scholar officials had an unusual amount of authority over military officers. The, the scholar officials, especially those who followed the new ideas of Neo-Confucianism, tended to look down on soldiers, on officers. In China, the ideal career for a talented young man was the bureaucracy, not the military. The military was a low-class career path, usually passed down through old military families, who didn't have no fancy degrees or high-class pedigree, and probably didn't even listen to NPR. So even during Ming China's wars, the civilians were always in charge. If you remember from this week's episode, General Li Ru Song reported to the civilian official Song Ying Cheng during his portion of the Imjin War, and there was a bit of animosity between them. And this is one of the most criticized parts of the Ming Chinese military, and sometimes rightfully so, because this system could, and sometimes did, hurt military performance. If you've ever seen Disney's Mulan, there is a reference to this. There's a civilian character, counselor named Chi Fu, who basically just exists to make life harder for all the military characters. But that portrayal is an exaggeration. The civilian ministers were usually pretty competent, and they could pull a lot of strings in the right places to get the military machine moving because they knew how the bureaucracy worked. Song Ying Cheng in particular did miracles in organizing and planning the Chinese intervention in Korea, and he personally led troops in the Battle of Pyongyang, even though he wasn't an officer. So the military-civilian tension was definitely present, but not overwhelming, at least not in this period. The third big thing you need to know about the Ming Chinese army is that it was diverse. Different areas of China had different military units because they faced different threats. The first and most dangerous threat, always the biggest problem any Chinese dynasty had to face, were the steppe nomads to the north. The Chinese remembered the Mongol invasions, so the northern frontier was priority number one. Throughout the 1400s and 1500s, China faced numerous threats from the Mongols, the Jurchens, and a bunch of other groups. The Jurchens in particular would be the eventual fall of the Ming dynasty. 
but the Chinese responded by building a massive system of fortifications along their northern border, what we know today as the Great Wall of China. The enormous walls that tourists can go see today are not nearly as ancient as most people think. They were built during the 1400s by the Ming Dynasty, especially the ones you see in photographs, those were built by the Ming. You can tell because the firing positions are clearly built for artillery, not bows or catapults or any of the ancient weapons. The Great Wall was manned by the nine garrisons along the northern frontier, nine large army garrisons. They made up most of China's army in the north, and they had to move fast and strike hard to fight off any nomadic penetration. So the northern armies were based around cavalry, artillery, and fortress troops. Some of these troops were even Mongols that had come over to China's side. Kind of like the Romans, the Chinese recruited barbarians to fight other barbarians. But the Chinese faced a different enemy on the southeastern coast, the Wako or Woku pirates. By the 1550s, the Woku were such a menace that they were leading large armies into the Chinese heartland. China had to develop an entirely different force to fight this threat, so the Chinese army in the south was mostly naval troops and well-trained infantry. Then besides those guys, the guys fighting on the northern frontier and the guys fighting the pirates, you have other units in the southwest near Burma and Vietnam, in Tibet, fighting internal rebellions, etc., and China just had a lot of different types of army units. So when I say the average Chinese soldier, that wouldn't necessarily tell you much. Ming China faced a diversity of threats, and its military reflected that diversity. This is in contrast to Japan and Korea. Any Korean or Japanese soldier is going to be armed and trained pretty much the same way, no matter where they're from. China had multiple complex threats to counter. The Japanese and Koreans didn't. The Japanese were fighting other Japanese who were armed pretty much the same way, and the Koreans weren't fighting much of anybody. The point is that China's first encounters with the Japanese in 1592 were handled by forces pulled off the northern frontier, mostly cavalry troops. And Chinese cavalry always had a tough time operating in Korea due to the terrain. They were good at what they were designed to do, fighting Mongols, but they were not great against a large infantry-based army in close, mountainous, or muddy terrain. It turned out that troops from southern China were much better at fighting the Japanese, since they were large, well-trained infantry units designed to fight other infantry. The southern and Chinese infantry were the ones who stormed Pyongyang's walls. Both Chinese and Korean leadership noted that southern China's tough, disciplined infantry were the best troops to fight the Japanese. Number four thing you need to know. Ming China was a gunpowder empire, the world's first gunpowder empire. Other gunpowder empires would follow, the Spanish, the Ottomans, but Ming China was the first. There's this popular history idea that China invented gunpowder, but only used it to make silly fireworks, while the Europeans were the ones who invented guns. And this is absolutely false. China invented gunpowder, they also invented guns, used the first guns in combat, and they never looked back. Even when the Europeans brought more advanced models in the 1500s, the Chinese just adopted these weapons and used them to improve their own arsenal that they already had. The Army of Ming China was a force that relied on firearms, both handheld weapons and artillery, for success in its wars. Now don't get me wrong, the Chinese infantry and cavalry were still armed with lots of bows, spears, and swords, like all the armies of this period. The crossbow was a particular favorite weapon of the Chinese. They had invented that too, after all. And lots of troops would go to Korea in 1593 armed with crossbows and short swords. 
The Chinese still wore armor, sometimes the scaled lamellar, but more often the lighter brigandine, a cloth armor with steel plates riveted into the fabric. The Chinese put less focus on armor development after the invention of gunpowder, so the Chinese always focused on lighter, more flexible armor in this time period. The problem was that your average Ming soldier was now never as well-armored or armed as a samurai. Their swords were shorter than the Japanese katana. This would be a major weakness in close combat, but close combat wasn't the Chinese specialty. Because Ming artillery and firearms were dominant in East Asia in the 16th century, and they were organized just like everything else in China. There were firearms training schools and armaments bureaus and all sorts of training manuals and doctrinal works dealing with the use of guns, many of which we still have. All these works included technical descriptions, tactical formulas, and even case studies of recent campaigns to show, hey, they did this, it didn't work, don't do that. Almost all Chinese units had guns. Lots of guns. Big ones, small ones, pistols, muskets, carbines for the cavalry, light and heavy artillery, even some very primitive multi-barrel or breech-loading weapons. China in the 1500s gives the USA a run for its money when it comes to pure gun nuttery. Now, Chinese muskets were not quite as good as the Japanese arquebus. The reason for this was that Japan basically copied the most up-to-date European tech, while the Chinese had been using a musket that was basically good enough since the early 1500s. None of the threats they faced had a lot of muskets, so there was no reason to develop it any farther than they did. But the pride and joy of the Ming arsenal was its artillery. These guns came in enormous numbers of sizes, variants. So on the smaller side, for instance, you have the Hu Kun Pao, or Crouching Tiger Cannon. A small gun about two feet long, weighing 33 pounds, mounted on a bipod and firing a canister shot of almost 100 small pellets. The Crouching Tigers are especially noted to have been used during the Battle of Pyongyang, just unleashing a hail of projectiles that drove the Japanese from the walls. On the bigger side, the great general gun could weigh 800 pounds or more and fired a large iron ball. The Chinese also incorporated rocket artillery, smoke bombs, hand grenades, and heavy mortars into their arsenal. So the Ming had lots of artillery, and they were good at it. When I say that the Ming army that attacked the Japanese at Pyongyang in 1593 had over 2,000 cannons, I am dead serious. Lots of them were small, like the Crouching Tiger, a 33-pound gun. But that's still 2,000 cannon! One Korean minister said this to King Sanjo after the Battle of Pyongyang. When the Japanese fire their muskets, you can still hear, even if they fire from all sides. But when the Chinese fire their cannon, the sky and the earth vibrate, and the mountains and plains tremble, and you can't even speak. Throughout the Imjin War, the Ming military was just an all-you-can-eat buffet of gunpowder weaponry. And point number five about the Ming Chinese military. The Chinese military in the Imjin War was coming out of a major period of reform. Before the Imjin War, from about 1450 to 1550, the Ming military had experienced a severe decline in performance and efficiency. I mentioned how the Chinese had all these modern standards and institutions, but putting them into practice was another question. The low social status of the military career track compared to the civilian career track resulted in not the best people being pushed into the military, resulting in corruption, neglect... Soldiers were poorly paid and poorly cared for, and officers were incompetent and lazy and corrupt. 
There would be thousands of men on the rosters, but when there was an actual threat, these men didn't seem to actually exist. So what was happening was the officers in charge were making up all these fake numbers and pocketing the salaries of the men who didn't exist. So when the Mongols came close to Beijing in the 1550s, there were supposed to be 107,000 soldiers in the city, but somehow no one could find even half that number. A force of Woku pirates almost straight up captured Nanjing in the 1560s, the largest southern city, since local army units only existed on paper. And even those troops the Chinese did have were low on discipline and morale. Reform was necessary. The general, Qi Jiguang, would be the great reformer of the Ming Chinese military, one of history's great military reformers. Qi Jiguang was still in his 20s when, in 1555, he was given a command in the war against the Woku pirates. Qi Jiguang had to fight the pirates with an untrained, barely motivated, poorly disciplined rabble of peasants, like, here's your army, good luck. And most people had failed, and most people would have failed. But Qi Jiguang implemented strict discipline, simple but effective training, and morale-boosting symbols and music to convert his peasant mob into an efficient fighting force. He focused his army around the 12-man squad, armed with a mix of spears, swords, muskets, and bamboo snares that fought in combination. Within a decade, Shi Jiguang's new system had defeated the Woku pirates for good. He took that complicated training from the manuals and brought it down to the peasant level and turned a peasant rabble into an efficient army. So in the 1560s, Qi Jiguang was reassigned to the northern border, where he worked his usual magic, repairing the Great Wall, reorganizing the army, rebuilding its morale, and overhauling the whole system of training. One of his big innovations, again, was in retraining the infantry small unit tactics to fight the steppe nomads. This involved a squad of 20 men organized around a battle wagon, a large wooden cart that was used as a firing platform. Ten men would fight from the cart using small cannons and muskets like the Crouching Tiger Cannon, while the other ten would push the cart around and fight as a maneuver force. A group of these carts could be formed into a circle, like a wagon circle in the Old West, to resist Mongol cavalry attacks. And Shi Jiguang used his new tactics to defeat several major Mongol invasions throughout the 1570s. Qi Jiguang died in 1588, four years before the Imjin War began, but his reforms and his military manuals were common knowledge. This was the uh, doctrinal revolution of the Ming military in the late 1500s. Many Korean generals, before and during the Imjin War, used his work as a reference for how to turn new recruits into an effective army. Yi Sun Shen read Shi Jiguang's military manuals. Guan Yul read Shi Jiguang's military manuals. So, he was more than just an, a tactical reformer. Qi Jiguang's ideas about organization, training, and boosting soldiers' morale were ahead of their time. Some of this stuff sounds positively 20th century. So the late Ming military was probably one of the most efficient and well-organized fighting forces in the world, a true gunpowder army capable of fighting almost any threat. And they demonstrated this during the three great campaigns of the Wanli Emperor. One of these campaigns was the Imjin War, which the Chinese called the Korean Emergency. But we're already telling that story. So what were the other two great campaigns of the Wanli Emperor? In early 1592, a Chinese general named Pu Bei launched a mutiny in the great fortress city of Ningxia, one of the nine garrisons along the Great Wall. Pu Bei was a Mongol warlord who had defected to China, but his clashes with his civilian superiors, uh-uh, there it happens again, had reached a breaking point. 
He raised an army of 40,000 men and reached out across the Great Wall to ally with some of his Mongol kinsmen. Now, you just need to say the word Mongol to get China to drop everything else they're doing and get moving. Any steppe nomad threat immediately sent China into survival mode. Emperor Wan Li sent the northern armies west to recapture Ningxia. All the Chinese attention was on Ningxia. And then, like five minutes later, they got news that the Japanese had invaded Korea. You ever have one of those days when everything that can go wrong goes wrong all at once? But the Ningxia Rebellion had to be priority number one, and that was why the Chinese couldn't send troops to fight the Samurai Blitzkrieg immediately. Korea's like, big bro, come save us, and big bro says, uh, little busy here, be there in a few months. Now, the Ningxia Rebellion could fill a full-length episode. Multiple sieges and battles and relief attempts, multiple assaults on the fortress city, Mongol invasions across the Great Wall, you name it. Eventually, General Li Rusong was sent to take command, and he had the idea to flood Ningxia out by diverting a local river using a dike. The Chinese captured the city after five months of brutal siege on October 12, 1592. Then General Li immediately said, okay, job's done over here, and marched directly from Ningxia to the Korean border. So yeah, China might have seemed like they were dragging their feet in this week's episode, but they were putting out the fire in their own house first. The last of the Wanli Emperor's three great campaigns was the Bajol Rebellion in southwest China, led by a local chieftain named Yang Yinglong. The Chinese could never ignore Yang Yinglong, he was stirring up a ruckus down there for a decade, but they had to keep him on the back burner throughout the Imjin War. When they were finally done with the Imjin War in 1598, China gathered 200,000 men, a larger army than they ever sent to Korea, to finally crush the Bajol Rebellion in 1600. So my point is, China had multiple things to worry about all the time. Korea has one thing to worry about. A big thing, yeah, but still only one thing. China was always keeping one eye out for the next crisis. If it ever seems like it's not, they're not interested enough in saving Korea from the Japanese, in saving little brother, keep that in mind. Because Korea is not the only little brother China has. If the Chinese had a big weakness, it was the quality of their soldiers. The military was considered such a low-status career that it was hard to keep people in the ranks. China had to turn to the dregs of society. Drifters, vagabonds, common criminals. Poor discipline and abuse of civilians was a constant problem in the Ming army. For instance, China measured the scale of a victory by the number of heads taken in battle. Taking heads is just the thing you do in East Asia. They're all, they're all doing this. Chinese, Korean, Japanese, they're all doing this throughout the Imjin War. But Chinese officers had a bad habit of buffing their numbers by taking random heads from civilians, even their own civilians. There are stories of commanders taking the heads of their own dead to reach the minimum 160 required for a merit and a promotion. To be fair, that's only slightly worse than the modern U.S. Army promotion system. This record for poor discipline and brutality towards civilians would be felt during the Imjin War. Ming soldiers plundered, looted, burned, and in some cases raped and murdered Korean citizens. Their officers punished them for it, and Lee Rusong made public examples out of his soldiers when he got the chance. But if you were a random civilian somewhere in Korea in 1593, the sad fact was that a Ming soldier on his lonesome was almost as dangerous as a samurai. But still, Despite the legendary reputation of the samurai, Ming China was no slouch. They had a large, well-trained professional army with a cornucopia of big things that went boom. And most importantly, in my opinion, 
China's bureaucratic state machine could muster up resources on a scale that Japan could never hope to match. When Song Yingcheng began to prepare the Ming intervention forces that would come rescue Korea, he put in production orders for 360 battle wagons, 72,000 cannons of various types, 27,000 bows and crossbows, thousands of shields, millions of arrows, and every barrel of gunpowder and every bullet that he could lay his hands on. He also planned out transportation routes, cost estimates, how much food they would need, shipping lanes. There is just this organization to the Ming military that the Japanese did not have. And for me, this is the reason the Japanese were never going to conquer China, let alone win the Imjin War. So let's wrap this up with a brief discussion of the Korean military. And guys, there isn't a lot to say because the Korean military, like most other Korean government institutions, was built on the model of the Chinese military. It had the rank structure, the manuals, standing units, inspectors, regulations, etc. So why wasn't the Korean army as effective, or as well-armed, or as well-prepared as the Chinese? Well, for one thing, Korea had all of China's weaknesses, but worse. The military was even more degraded by civilians, the troops were less disciplined, less motivated, corruption and neglect were an even bigger issue, and they didn't have that reform period. They didn't do the good things as well, and they did the bad things worse. See, Korea had adopted Neo-Confucian philosophy from China, but they were more concerned with the theory than the practice. Korea was still doing stuff that the ancient texts said was a good idea in the 1500s, when the Chinese had thrown that crap out the window ages ago because it just didn't work. Because the Koreans were peaceful and hadn't had a major war in decades, they never had the come-to-Jesus moment when they realized their system was broken. Well, they kind of did, but it was 1592, (laughs) and it was not good when it happened. China, which was averaging a major military campaign every year, had to use what worked rather than what sounded good. Like, look, here's one example. Ancient Chinese philosophers had this idea of a landed military class that would serve as the state army, like a warrior peasant militia. And this never worked in practice. These units were useless. China tried this early in the Ming Dynasty. It didn't work. They got rid of it. But Korea held on to this system, and the Korean version of this military system was so obviously bonkers that it doesn't seem real. Soldiers were drafted and forced to serve between the ages of 16 and 60, were not paid at all, and had to make their own weapons and equipment under threat of punishment. The rich kids were all exempt from this draft, pretty much. They could pay to get out of it. Which meant your average Korean soldier was an unpaid peasant who had to make his own weapons. And you can imagine the level of motivation this created. Guys, a Facebook meme page could design a better military than this. But because some philosopher from ages ago BC thought it was an awesome idea, the Korean government decided that it was awesome too. The inevitable result was that Koreans treated military service like most cats treat a bath. They bribed officials, hid in the woods, did anything possible to get out of military service, and can you blame them? Only very charismatic, competent commanders, someone like Yi Sun Shen, could keep a military unit effective. Now, the Koreans were well-armed. Korean bows were famous for their high quality. Korean archers were famous for their accuracy and skill. But in an age of arquebus muskets and crouching tiger guns, this was no time to be concentrating your energy on the bow and arrow. Korea also had cannons of their own. They even sorted them to four models, the Heaven, Earth, Black, and Yellow variants. No, I don't think Wiz Khalifa got his musical inspiration from 16th century Korean artillery. 
But most of the Korean arsenal fell into Japanese hands within the first few months of the Imjin War, and they had to be rearmed by their Ming Chinese allies. So yeah, the standing army was a mess when the Imjin War began, as we saw. There's a reason that the greatest Korean resistance to the Japanese came from one guy, Yi Sun Shin's personally organized and trained battle fleet, and the guerrillas who were fighting outside of the normal military system. Still though, thanks to a few capable officers, men like Guan Yul, Kim Si Min, and Jong Gi Ryong, the Korean army recovered from the early disasters and rebuilt itself with assistance from the Ming and careful study of modern military manuals, especially the works of the great reformer Chi Ji Guang. Throughout the Imjin War, Korean soldiers would serve side by side with the Ming in almost all the campaigns, big bro and little bro, fighting the Japanese together. But the war would not be easy. As we have seen, underestimating the Japanese was a big, big mistake. The Ming Chinese and Chosun Koreans would struggle to cope with Hideyoshi's samurai army and its amazing combat lethality down to the very end of the war. People went hard in the 16th century, everywhere, but especially here, where the guns of the dragon faced the rising samurai sun. Thanks a bunch for listening today, as always. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it, unless they're your civilian overseer and you might get in trouble with the emperor. If you don't, tell your enemies. And if you have to take their heads, make sure they're your enemies first. Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources and some additional commentary. I am always available on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod, or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect. If you got advice, I'd love to hear it. Don't forget that the Imjin War resumes on Monday. We continue the narrative. So I will see you then, same place, same time, next week on Unknown Soldiers.